Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. Where do we stand? We central bankers, we have been operating as a monetary anchor in relation to the commercial banks and the private money. If we are not in that game, if we are not involved in experimenting, in innovating in terms of digital uh, central bank money, we risk losing the role of anchor that we have played uh, for many, many decades. And we have historical examples of period where the central bank uh, monetary anchor was not there and that precipitated crisis after crisis. That certainly was the case at the time of the free banking in the 19th century. Do we want to go back to those days? Probably not. I would say certainly not from our vantage point, as a result of which we have to respond to the demand for those digital payments in order to maintain the role of anchor that we have uh, been playing uh, So that's regularly. a good friend, Christine Lagarde, telling everybody that they're the anchor. The central bankers are the anchor, and they got to be there when these central bank digital currencies come up because we can't just go back to the way it was in the 19th century when almost everything that was really cool got built. Do you see what I'm saying? No, they can't have that. They've been the anchor for decades and decades. And if it hadn't been for Christine Lagarde and her central banker friends, oh, well, shit would be a lot worse, wouldn't it? It'd be just a whole lot worse. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think so. What you know, the the fact that she's begging, it almost sounds like she's pleading from a position of weakness. The case for central bankers to stick around and do what they're always doing, basically screwing everybody, hardcore screwing everybody. That you know, it it's almost as if. <clears throat> It's almost as if it's just a complete hypocrisy. Just a little bit, maybe. Let's talk about hypocrisy. What what is hypocrisy? Well, the best way to teach people, you know, the, the definition of a new word is to let somebody else define the word for you. For example. So we would have to apply to have like approved events to be able to fly for. Well, that's one thing that you could look at doing. Am I allowed to go to Fiji? Is that necessary? In the current climate crisis, I don't think that that's necessary. When was the last time you were on a plane? Mm, I'm not sure. Maybe a few months ago, to be honest. Where'd you go? Fiji. Izzy! (laughs) Izzy! Don't you care about the climate, Izzy? Of course I care about the climate. Not enough. You went to... <laughs> you went to Fiji. <laughs> Izzy, come on, Mays. Are you serious? That's hypocrisy, ladies and gentlemen. That's what hypocrisy sounds like. That's how it's defined. That, that little girl, that little high school girl is the new Greta Thunberg, I guess, whatever. Anyway, she's Izzy something or other. And she... Telling people not to go to Fiji on a plane because it's going to destroy the environment. And yet, last month, she went to Fiji on a plane. That's hypocrisy. And this is episode 621 of Bitcoin. And it is the 28th of September, 2022. And uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> look, she's still laughing. Are you serious, Izzy? Oh, uh, it's just, she can't. Are you still there? Stop laughing. It is pretty ironic, but to be honest, it's not really a trip that I wanted to go on, but I can't really get out of it. Why'd you go? go. Why'd you go? My parents wanted to go. Izzy! I didn't want to go. How are you embarrassed that your parents did that to the planet and then forced you to do it as well? Of course I'm not embarrassed. Did you have a terrible time? 
Not really. I didn't. Have to <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, mate. Listen, you're such a champion. I think you've got a brilliant future ahead of you. And and I, are you doing another strike soon? <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll look to. Good. I will. I will. We'll talk to you again. And why can you back on the show? Yeah, hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. If you never knew what hypocrisy, she calls it ironic. It's not. It's it's straight up hypocrisy. These people, they hate you. They. It's fashionable to hate all the humans on the planet, apparently, but yourself. If you're in that club of Greta Thunberg and all the rest of the miscreant Hitler youth. Anyway, let's, let's move on now that we, uh, now that we've had our laughs for this morning and get into something serious. We heard from Christine Lagarde about, you know, they need to play that role of anchorship in the CBDC future that we all face. So let's find out from Shinobi Something about the United States Central Bank digital currency narrative being a fantasy, as according to Bitcoin Magazine and Shinobi himself. Since the recent White House report on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, the discussion around a United States Central Bank digital currency has been raging again. Will they make one? How long will it take? Of course, the government is going to take advantage of the broad increases in surveillance capabilities and powers that a CBDC will bring, right? Their own report specifically mentions more efficiency as a payments platform, faster cross-border payments, economic growth and stability, easier monetary policy control, uh, protecting against cyber and operational risks, you know, like security breaches of financial institutions, safeguarding the privacy of sensitive data and minimizing the risk of illicit financial transactions. So in other words, They want to have total insight into your entire financial activity, have the ability to directly deposit money into people's accounts for stimulus and monetary policy purposes, and be able to arbitrarily block illicit activity, which, as we know these days, is a quickly shifting target that means who knows what next year. In 2017, your average adult made 41 economic transactions a month, with about 12.4 of them taking place with cash. That would mean, looking at these figures, that approximately 3,192,200,000 cash transactions occur in the United States every month. To compare with Bitcoin with some napkin math, ignoring the efficiencies gained through transactional batching and other optimizations, the Bitcoin blockchain processes somewhere around 3,000 transactions a block on average, getting to somewhere in the figure of 13 million transactions a month. So let's... Just to replace the average volume of cash transactions alone, a CBDC would need to process 246 times more transactions each each month than Bitcoin. And that is just replacing cash, not eating it into debit or credit card payments or absorbing some of the payment volume of fintech apps like PayPal and Cash App. Such a system would need the kind of uptime that we currently see with payment systems like Visa and MasterCard. Think about how often basic digital government services fail or go offline. Have you ever had a tax year where IRS payment portals did not get overloaded and crash? Does anyone remember the massive debacle of the Obamacare website and constant crashing and failure? Do you really think that the federal government can handle building and maintaining a system independently to facilitate the types of payment volumes necessary to offer a digital alternative to cash without massive failures. What happens when users suffer fund losses, lose their phones, things break? Massive companies such as PayPal and major banking institutions who have had years, decades in some cases, building customer support systems to handle such failures and issue regularly drop the ball, take forever to respond to people and drag the entire process out into a long and frustrating ordeal before actually solving the problem. Do you think the federal government could handle such a task? No. Even considering that a realistic possibility is frankly laughable in my mind. Now, let's look at the financial effects of such a CBD system eating into the current financial system. The idea ostensibly is to have a system operated by the Federal Reserve or potentially the Treasury, 
that provides financial services and capabilities directly to consumers. That is the role that private banks and financial service providers fill in the economy currently. The Federal Reserve does not offer any directly consumer-facing tools or services. They provide accounts to the financial institutions that do so in order for them to hold reserve money with the Federal Reserve and to settle transactions amongst themselves using the Fedwire system. To introduce a CBDC that is directly consumer-facing would begin an inevitable disintermediation of these private entities in the financial services market. And given that financial services make up 7.4% of U.S. GDP, that process would have a huge implication for the United States economy depending on how deeply the CBDC bit into that market. How many people would choose to use a CBDC over Cash App or PayPal? Over their banks at J.P. Morgan. If it was a sufficient amount of people, this would have a huge negative effect on the financial sector. Every person who chose to withdraw their money from those institutions and instead hold in a CBDC would be someone pulling their deposits from the bank and leaving them with less reserves to conduct business with. What about cross-border payments? How would that mechanically work? Connections to legacy systems such as SWIFT? Simply sending the CBDC token directly to someone in a foreign jurisdiction? If you are simply going to use SWIFT or other international transfer systems, how does a CBDC in any way improve the speed of cross-border payments? If you are going to directly facilitate the transfer of the CBDC itself internationally, how do you enforce KYC and AML? Does that not require directly identifying foreign citizens making use of the system? This would result in the expansion of both data collection and direct financial controls of the United States government into foreign territories. So let's recap, shall we? The technical effort to implement a system such as this is immense and well beyond the capabilities of the government to handle themselves. Deploying such a system would directly eat into private financial companies' bottom lines and cause a massive hit to the United States economy if successful. Attempting to deploy this as a cross-border payment tool would either make no difference whatsoever or come with massive political implications in doing so. So what's the reality? An American CBDC, as it is predominantly envisioned, is just never going to happen. It is completely impractical on a technological level and would usher in a very destructive restructuring of the United States financial services sector if adopted at any serious level. What could actually happen? More of the same. There is no way the United States government could actually handle constructing a consumer-facing CBDC system, but companies like PayPal, JP Morgan, Amazon, etc. could very well handle such a system. They have decades of experience in building back-end infrastructure for digital systems with a massive user base on the order of the United States population. The experience in handling the design of consumer interfaces for such system, and as subpar as it usually is, have experience in managing the types of support infrastructure necessary for helping consumers deal with problems when the system fails to perform as it should. There will be no Federal Reserve CBDC app directly interfacing with their back-end database. There will be, maybe, an overhaul or extension of Fedwire to facilitate companies like PayPal or Chase building private apps and siloed databases that are connected to Fedwire accounts to easily transfer CBDC tokens. In reality, probably not even that. An account at Fedwire as it exists right now will be good enough for private companies. Why even go so far as to implement any type of cryptography or token either? If you're just talking about a database entry in a PayPal system, what's the point of signatures authorizing transactions, custodying your own keys, etc.? What benefit does it add? Absolutely nothing. You aren't self-custodying anything. It's just an entry that PayPal can freeze, delete, or refuse to update, exactly like it is now. What's the big fundamental change? QR codes. Just a few UI UX wrapper around more of the same existing fintech payment app apps that have existed for almost 20 years now. There is literally zero benefits in such a system to implementing any of the key primitives of a system like Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. Decentralized databases do not scale. That is something every single Bitcoiner should fundamentally understand 
when aware of the scaling challenges of Bitcoin, why introduce such primitives to a CBDC? So people can lose access to their funds easier? To have some compelling narrative you can push on the unsuspecting public? That's irrelevant. Just simply adding a QR code you can scan to send money is fancy and new and fresh to normal people. That's all you need for your compelling narrative. The entire narrative of CBDCs is nothing but one gigantic misnomer that is slowly being pushed out into the public consciousness to normalize existing digital payment mechanisms as a new norm in place of cash. Nothing is going to change. There will be no stunning new applications or possibilities enabled by blockchain. There will just be flashier and simpler user interfaces and more flexible bank payment application APIs. There's no fundamental technological breakthrough that is possible or coming with a CBDC. It's purely a marketing campaign and nothing else. In reality, the question is cash itself. Can they push the narrative that we don't need it anymore? Can they find the means to put such payment apps in the hands of people that do not currently have access to them, particularly the elderly? Can they convince people that cash is unnecessary with such systems available as options in the modern world? A central bank digital currency is nothing but a meme at the heart of one of the biggest gaslighting campaigns that governments and financial institutions have ever tried to pull on the public at large. Bitcoiners should not humor this campaign in the slightest bit by acting like a CBDC has anything in common with Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency for that matter by engaging with these pushes and narratives using their language. It is feeding into the manipulation, the gaslighting, and the inevitable switcheroo that is coming at the end of all of this. There is no such thing as a CBDC. There is just a shiny new wrapper for fintech apps like PayPal and tighter integration between them and systems like Fedwire. There's not a whole lot that I can't disagree with here, that I can disagree with here. He's, Shinobi's on the ball on this shit. The only thing that I would disagree with is this being the biggest gaslighting campaign that governments have ever engaged in is simply false. I, that's where I, I, I directly disagree with Shinobi, and here's why. I w I've been thinking about this a lot lately. People who I've known for years, all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but now that I look, it seems like it's all of a sudden, are thinking about pronouns and are talking about transgender issues and people that I'm people that I've known for fucking decades are all into this shit. And I had to ask myself this particular question. Did any of these people ever give shit one about pronoun usage before the media onslaught of pronoun usage? Think about that. Think about the people in your own life. Did they? Like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, did your brother lose his freaking mind that people weren't using they and them? No, your brother probably wasn't doing that. Why? What not his radar? What not his radar? How did it get on everybody's radar? Government and media crawled into bed together and had the unholy child of propaganda. And it works every single time on masses. Every single freaking time, except this time, it's only slightly different because the world can hear a single voice all at once because it gets spread through so many different platforms. Whether it's social media or, you know, news online or you're sitting in your doctor's office and you look up and there's CNN telling you that maybe it's okay for pedophiles to be pedophiles because they're not really pedophiles. They're just minor attracted adults or whatever they're called. And maps, minor attracted people, I, whatever. Nobody, nobody used these terms 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Nobody was thinking about this shit. We thought about shit in a completely different way. That, in my opinion, is indeed the largest gaslighting campaign that governments around the world have been engaged with ever. The CBDC, maybe one tenth that size, if that. That is the only place that I disagree with Shinobi. Everything else, Shinobi's spot on. And this dovetails beautifully with what 
our good friend Christine Lagarde was saying at the very first of the show. They want to be part of the CBDC. They have to be part of the CBDC infrastructure. If they're not, everything is going to collapse because they're the anchor. And Shinobi laid it out beautifully as to what they want. There is no such thing as a CBDC. It's just a brand new wrapper for the same old shit. And Christine Lagarde and her, all the friends of hers that all should be in prison, frankly, they want and are going to require that they maintain control of the legacy financial system that is inside that new wrapper because that shit ain't going to go away. Thank you, Shinobi. It's a, a good way of looking at this entire thing. Now, getting into a little bit of humor, <clears throat> uh, MEV bot earns $1 million but loses everything to an ha- a hacker one hour later. Ezra Ruguera from Cointelegraph. An Ethereum arbitrage trading bot managed to hit the jackpot and lose it all on the same day in an ironic turn of events in decentralized finance. I don't think it's ironic, dude. Listen to Alanis Morissette's song. She'll, she'll, she'll tell you about it. In a Twitter thread, Robert Miller, who works at the research firm Flashbots, shared how a maximal extractable value MEV bot with the prefix 0XBADC0DE was able to earn 800 Ether, which is around a million dollars through arbitrage trades. By the way, if you didn't catch that, that prefix is leet speak for bad code. It literally is zero X bad code. <laughs> I, I can't write this shit, man. I can't. According to Miller, the bot took advantage of a huge arbitrage opportunity that came when a trader attempted to sell $1.8 million in CUSDC through the decentralized exchange Uniswap V2 and only got $500 worth of assets in return. The bot detected this chance and immediately sprung to action and gained massive profits. However, only one hour later, a hacker exploited a vulnerability in bad codes, bad code, and tricked it into authorizing a transaction that drained its balance of 1,101 Ethereum or Ether, which was around $1.41 million at the time of writing. According to the blockchain security firm PeckShield, The bug can be traced back to the bot's callback routine, and this was exploited by the hacker to approve an arbitrary address for spending. On September the 18th, a vulnerability in profanity, (laughs) an Ethereum vanity address generator, was exploited, draining $3.3 million in funds from various wallets. Investigations done by the decentralized exchange aggregator One Inch Network highlighted that there was ambiguity in terms of the creation of wallets. The DEX warned users that their wallets were at risk and urged them to transfer their assets. More than a week later, another vanity wallet address was exploited and drained of almost $1 million worth of Ether. After stealing the funds, the hackers immediately sent them to the controversial crypto mixer Tornado Cash. It just never ends in DeFi, does it, ladies and gentlemen? No, it doesn't. Why? Because it's designed as a scam. Now, it, I know. No, I, I, no, that can't be correct. Nobody would ever do that. Oh, yes, they would. Oh, yes, they would. Yes, they would. And twice on Sundays. They absolutely, the entire theory, Ethereum ecosystem is nothing but a scam machine. And if you're into it, I don't know what to tell you, except that you need to get the fuck out of it real quick. So you can go to El Salvador, where they are hosting nonprofit Bitcoin conference with attendees from over 30 countries, according to Sean Omick from Bitcoin Magazine. El Salvador, the first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender, is hosting an adopting Bitcoin conference, which will see more than 110 speakers from over 30 countries gather to discuss financial inclusion per a press release. Galoy Incorporated, the company behind the Bitcoin Beach Wallet, is organizing the nonprofit event while cryptocurrency exchange Bitfinex will be the headline sponsor. The event will take place from November the 15th through the 17th, and El Salvadorans can grab discounted tickets 
for $21. Nice. That's a good price, dude. Quote, El Salvador is now making strides to become the Singapore of Central America and a beacon for financial inclusion. While Bitcoin is proving itself as an excellent medium of exchange that can facilitate millions of daily transactions, said Nicholas Berti, CEO of Galois, per the release. The first two days of the event will take place at the Crown Plaza Convention Center, where speakers will share the latest developments relating the technology and economics in the Bitcoin ecosystem. John Attack, a Bitcoin core developer who recently received a $50,000 grant from the Human Rights Foundation, will deliver one of the key technological presentations at the conference. Additionally, <clears throat> excuse me. Additionally, Mexican Senator Indira Kempis will be the most prominent speaker focused on the economic discussions. Kempis made headlines in the past for her support of the central bank digital currencies, but also for her attempts to establish Bitcoin as legal tender in Mexico. The third day of the event will see the attendees travel to Bitcoin Beach in El Zante to see where the adoption of Bitcoin in the country started. Quote, after less than one year, we are seeing one in five people use Bitcoin daily, said Mike Peterson, director of Bitcoin Beach. Now delegations of representatives, bankers, and technologists from all corners of the world are coming to El Salvador to learn how Bitcoin can be used as a tool for financial inclusion. So there you go. Yet another, another very large conference going on in El Salvador. Um, not much to say about this one, uh, other than that Galoy has, uh, Galoy Incorporated has been in this game for quite a long time. And what I like about Galoy is they, they don't really make them, their presence known that much. They seem to have their heads down and they just work a lot. So, um, Let's see, is there anything else? Nope, I guess it's time to go ahead and run those numbers. Earl is up today. 3.64% for West Texas Intermediate, clocking in at $81.36 a barrel. Brent North Sea is up almost a full three points to $88.81 a barrel. Natural gas finally turning positive, 1.28%, uh, $6.73 per thousand cubic feet. Gasoline, likewise up a point and a half to $2.53 a gallon. Gold and all of its brethren are all up today. Gee, I wonder why. Gold up 1.79% to $1,665. Bucks. Silver is up 2.5 points to $18.79. Platinum is unchanged. Copper is up 2.16%. Palladium uh, skyrocketing 3.54%. Agricultural futures are mostly up. Wheat being the biggest winner again, 3.24% to the upside. Your biggest loser are soybeans for all you soy boys out there. I'm so sad that it's down 0.6%. Uh, Dow is up 1.47%, uh, as is the rest of the indices. And I, I can't imagine why. I really, That one, I'm being serious and not facetious. I wouldn't want to have anything to do with those legacy markets right now. But Dow's up a point and a half. S&P is up 1.43%, uh, NASDAQ up one2 And the S&P clawing back some of its losses 2.29% to the upside. Uh, Bitcoin's been a little bumpy lately. It was up, I think yesterday, it was clocking in at 20,250, dropped down to like, oh God, it was it was tremendous. It was like 19, uh, like, oh no, it was 18,885. Today it's back up to 19,543. So enjoy the roller coaster while it lasts. We've had 1.8, million BTC change hands in the last 24 hours uh, with average transaction values of 6.9 BTC and median transaction values of 0.025 BTC, which is just under $500 and block times are now low, nine minutes and 32 seconds. 0.1 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis, 15.6 BTC taken overall in the past 24 hours with a 2.61% drop in hash rate where down to 218 exahashes per second 
So I don't, we must have had a difficulty adjustment. That must be what, why we're at a block times of nine minutes and 32 seconds. Shitcoin indicator, Doge, 6.1 United States pennies. So you can imagine what's going on with the rest of the shitcoin markets. Uh, we've had, we have 186 transactions waiting on a single block to clear. We have $374.0 billion of market capitalization. That's 3.42% of gold's market cap. And if you so choose, you may purchase 11.8 ounces of your favorite metal rock with, uh, let's see, with your Bitcoin of which there is 19,162,892.17 of and 4,864.01 of those are in the Lightning Network valued at $95.0 million being run over 17,191 nodes, sporting 84,817 payment channels, and 69.6% of all that is being run over Tor. Uh, Tor's kind of undergoing an attack, and I wonder if that's why we're starting to see the percentage of Tor capacity for Lightning Network steadily decrease. I don't know. If you guys got any uh, answers for me, uh, please send them to me via boostograms and i think i've got some that's gonna do it for vitals though damn you fat toshi with your boosts of five thousand sats this is this is gonna be difficult ladies and gentlemen hold on through three cheese trees, three free fleas flew, while these fleas flew, freezy breeze blew, freezy breeze made these three trees freeze, freezy trees made these trees cheese freeze, that's what made these three free fleas sneeze. Man, read this or not, I'm laughing my ass off right now for some reason. Yeah, because you know I'm going to have to fight my way through this. Damn you, Fat Toshi, with your second 5,000 Satoshi boost. I'm going to make you hate me, but seriously, feel, 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 oh, see, I'm always screwed up. Feel free to tell me to fuck off. I'm just trolling you. Luke Luck likes lakes. Luke Luck's duck likes lakes. Luke L Luck licks lakes. Luke Luck's duck licks lakes like Luke Luck. God damn you, and Fat Toshi with your final 500 Satoshi boost. Ah, remembered what I wanted to say. I run the Cambridge Bitcoin meetup and have been speaking to Alexander Newmuller of CBECI. Let me know if you want to ask him anything specific, just so you know, he's a good guy. He, he's a miner himself. About the BMC, the word coal appears once on their website, according to Google. It's not used in the context of using coal. It's a false positive. The word fossil appears once in the same context. The word green appears 10 times and renewable 22. Yeah. But what, what am I telling you about propaganda today? Again, think about it. Did you, I mean, getting outside of fossil fuels and shit like that, did you ever once even think about pronouns prior to five years ago? prior to seven years ago. This is how propaganda works, people. And we always have to be vigilant and, and, and we can't all always be vigilant. We have to depend on other people who catch what you miss. In this case, caught what I missed and tell me so that I am better informed because we can't all know everything at once. It would be a very weird world if we did. Uh, F dub seven, 222 sats, almost a row of ducks. Strike has been great, but I need the no KYC off ramp in most stores. Corey like B Weiss can I'd sorry. I butcher in that dude. It's just the, the letters are really small. 25 sats and PGS with 10 sats. Thank you again for all of your boosts. Now, FTX reportedly considers bailing out Celsius via an asset bid. Now, yesterday, I talked to you about FTX US bailing out, basically bailing out Voyager. Now, FTX, not FTX US, the parent corp, FTX, 
is considering the same thing with Celsius. Arjit Sarkar, Cointelegraph, tells us more. Crypto exchange FTX, led by crypto billionaire Sammy Bankman-Fried, is reportedly considering bailing out Celsius Network by bidding on the bankrupt lender's assets. Coincidentally, the information came out the same day Alex Mashinsky resigned as the CEO of Celsius. Sounds like it might be part of a package deal. Quote, I regret that my continued role as CEO has become an increasing distraction, and I am very sorry about the difficult financial circumstances member of our, members of our community are facing, said Mashinsky while explaining his decision. For FTX, acquiring the assets of Celsius would imply the exchange's intent to save the lending firm, similar to what FTX US did for Voyager by securing the winning bid of approximately $1.4 billion. Bloomberg reported on FTX's interest in Celsius Network based on insights from a person familiar with SBF's deal-making. However, an official statement from either party is pending at the time of writing. On September the 22nd, FTX was reportedly found to be in talks with investors to raise $1 billion, which, if bagged, would help the exchange hold its $32 billion valuation amid a bear market. Celsius filed for bankruptcy after disclosing about $1.2 billion in deficit in mid-2022. In August, Reuters reported on Ripple's interest in purchasing Celsius as Celsius's assets, which has since gone cold. FTX has not yet responded to Cointelegraph's request for comment. In what seems like a massive restructuring drive, Brett Harrison stepped down from FTX US as US. Ah, damn it. See, those tongue twisters screwed me up permanently. Let's try it again. In what seems like a massive restructuring drive, Brett Harrison stepped down from FTX U.S. president to move into an advisory role in the next few months. Editing, people. Editing. Sorry, I'm, I won't go on it. Uh, until then, I'll be assisting Sam Bankman-Fried and the team with his transition to ensure FTX ends the year with all its characteristic momentum, said Harrison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this just sounds like a, 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 a massive deal in the works that required the other guy, uh, Mashinsky, to step down as CEO. Otherwise, they weren't going to do it. They weren't going to do it. And I can imagine that because he was getting so much well, he deserved he deserves to be in prison, okay? Just saying. But his role as CEO was going to be a distraction and Sam was going to say, "No. I'm not going to do this if I have to deal with you still sitting in that chair. You got to leave or there is no deal." I'm pretty sure that that's what happened. It's just a gut feeling. I don't have any Nobody's ringing my, you know, telephone saying, hey, I got a hot tip for you. No, it's pure gut feeling. But yeah, they're probably going to pick up Celsius. But I honestly, I don't really know why. What the hell does Celsius have left? And if they have something left that Sam Bankman fried wants, then what the hell is it? Uh, it's going to be interesting to find out. Now, <clears throat> I know we're... We're going to be talking the next two things a little bit about uh, Ethereum. I know. Don't gag, though. And here's why. You got to see where that train wreck is heading so that you can steer clear of it. Okay? So that you can steer clear of Ethereum. If, if for whatever reason you're on the fence, maybe this one will get you off of it because you don't want to have anything to do with this. Why? Because Stanford wrote a proposal for reversible Ethereum transactions, and by God, if it hasn't divided the crypto community. Well, it hasn't divided me at all. I hope you guys do it. Have fun staying poor. Coindesk and Sam Kessler tells us more. A group of Stanford University blockchain researchers divided the crypto community last week with a research proposal that would entertain the possibility of creating reversible transactions on Ethereum. I thought we already had that. It happened in 2016. We called it the DAO and they reversed everything. But let's move on. The proposal was welcomed by those who believe crypto's status quo, where theft is rampant and a typo can cost you $36 million, poses barriers to mainstream adoption. But it was panned by others for its suggestion that a decentralized set of judges should be used to arbitrate transaction disputes. 
implicit in the proposal was a question. In an industry where the next $100 million theft is an inevitability, does protecting users require compromising on core principles? A key tenet of blockchains like Ethereum is the concept of immutability. <clears throat> the idea that transactions cannot be reversed once they are finalized. Again, see Dow 2016. Immutability, immutability, immutability is heralded as an important feature for cryptocurrencies because it curtails the ability of banks, governments, and other central authorities to come in and alter chains letter. But immutability can also be a major user experience bummer. If you get scammed, are the victim of a hack, or just screw up and send funds to the wrong address, you have zero recourse to cover, recover your losses. In terms of on-chain thefts, the Stanford researchers noted that in their paper that in 2020, $7.8 billion was stolen, and in 2021, that amount doubled to 14. According to these researchers, had there been any way to reverse the offending transactions as in traditional finance, the damage could have been greatly reduced. But not everyone's convinced. Ethereum builders tend to create new tokens by writing code that follows certain predefined standards. Jesus, it's laughable. These standards act like templates. Developers can clone a token template, change a couple of parameters, and build out a brand new cryptocurrency that is automatically compatible with most mainstream Ethereum apps. The proposal extends the ERC-20 and ERC-721 token standards used by most Ethereum-based currencies and non-fungible tokens. The new standards, ERC-20R and ERC-721R, would allow for transactions to be wound back if, if they are disputed within a brief window of time. <laughs> Quote, within the short dispute period, which they're not defining, a sender can request to reverse a transaction by convincing a decentralized set of judges to first freeze the disputed assets and then later convincing them to reverse the transaction. The researchers, and I put that in quotes, explained in their paper. If, if you don't understand why it is that I'm having a very difficult time with any of this, you haven't been listening to the show very long. This is a clown show. I'm reading you the script of a clown show in a dumpster fire in a circus tent. That's what you're, that's what you're hearing. And if you don't understand why, I, I, I can't help you. But on the critical end, it was the mention of a decentralized set of judges that seemed to strike a nerve with the largest number of tweeters. Many contended that a system like the one proposed in the paper simply wouldn't work. Quote, decentralized court systems using your proposed justice model already exist, e.g. Kleros. And unfortunately... They are rife with corruption, astroturfing, and manipulation by founders or early token holders, tweeted Fat Man, a pseudonymous crypto sleuth with a large following. Others thought the involvement of human judges undermined the entire point of decentralized finance, where code is supposed to remove the requirement that transactions be permissioned by central authorities. Do you see where this is going, people? Quote, all comes back to whether we want permissioned or permissionless DeFi tweeted Avenji Gevoy, the CEO of the crypto market maker Wintermute, which is also in dispute. In my opinion, permission DeFi is an oxymoron. Might as well get back to databases run by legacy banks. Quote, recent events haven't changed my opinion on that at all, he added. And his company lost $160 million to an exploit earlier this month after losing $15 million to a separate exploit back in June. So he's on the hook for $175 million, and he, even he doesn't agree with this shit. In addition to raising some technical nitpicks, Luke Youngblood, the co-founder of the decentralized finance firm Lunar Labs, framed his criticism to the proposal through a regulatory lens. Quote, it also creates a regulatory slash censorship choke point where governments and other regulators can potentially reverse crypto transactions. So it violates the censorship resistance and immutability that blockchains offer, he said in a message to Coindesk. The researchers noted in email correspondence with Coindesk that they were surprised by the level of engagement their paper received. Quote, it's just early stage research, they said. Quote, the intention was to have a constructive discussion on this approach to preventing theft, they continued. The work is certainly not a fully fleshed token standard. Far from it. 
end quote. Many critics, moreover, seem to misinterpret the proposal according to those same researchers. Quote, one misunderstanding which surprised us is that people thought the proposal is to make all transactions reversible on a layer one blockchain or to replace the regular ERC-20-721 standards, they wrote. This is not the case, they continued. The paper is simply a proposal for a token standard that people can use or not, just like any other token standard, end quote. The researchers admit, however, the challenges of designing a fair system for arbitrating transaction disputes. Uh, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I promise. Quote, if there is no way to architect a judicial system, then this proposal will not work, they said. Designing a fair judicial system or proving that one does not exist is an open question for the community to think about. Even as the proposal received criticism in some corners of the crypto community, it also earned considerable amounts of support. Emin Gunsir, the creator of the Avalanche blockchain, called the proposal a great idea. Ah! If you don't know who Emin Gunsir is, uh, you then then you're then you're later to the game. I had to deal with that asshole for, I don't know, four or five years. And now nobody ever retweets any of his shit, but he's apparently still in the game and he's been nothing but a Bitcoin hater ever since Bitcoin's inception. It's he's, and this is exactly what I would expect him to say. He noted that it was similar to one that, an idea that he'd suggested previously and suggesting it should be deployed more widely. Mm -hmm. Regarding criticism around corruptible judges, Daniel Goldman, an engineer at Ethereum scaling company Offchain Labs, noted, quote, those outcrying against this seem unaware of how many widely used ERC-20 tokens today have centralized admins with complete power to arbitrarily rug its holders, mint, burn, freeze, etc., etc., and get little to no pushback for it, end quote. Goldman's characterizations of the Stanford proposal sounds almost like a clean needles program for permission DeFi if decentralized finance applications already build human control level levers into their products it'd be better that those levers be clearly specified quote they aren't talking about replacing the ERC20 standard itself as far as i know nobody is if you're not a fan of centralized governor governorable ERC20s then don't use them Goldman tweeted, hell, even having a literally centralized standard would be a net win for the sake of transparency. Anyone who's done the work of inspecting token contracts to figure out how centralized they are knows how tricky and annoying it is. He continued, Brent Zhu, or Shu, however you pronounce Z-U, the founder of the blockchain UMI, took issue with the tenor of the criticism surrounding the proposal. Quote, Considering that you guys struck a huge nerve in crypto, Twitter shows that the idea is worth exploring, he tweeted. The community needs to continue to explore the flaws and merits of a design before immediately casting it aside, end quote. Above all, the researchers suggest that before coming to conclusions, people should do them the favor of reading the paper. Okay, so here it comes. What they're doing, what I see happening. And I, I don't want to say what they're doing because who is they, right? What I see happening is exactly what I've always seen happen, especially around Ethereum. You're just rebuilding what we already have and plugging in the same shit that we've always had to make an abomination that is sure to wipe out the wealth of billions of people should that many people engage with it, period, forever. That's what this is. Judges, a, 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 a short, brief window of dispute time? What's brief? 10 months? I've heard people look at 10 months and say, that's pretty fucking brief considering the project at hand, right? Is it a day? Is it an hour? And who are these judges? Are they, I mean, you know, clearly, clearly they're talking about, I mean, are we talking about a star chamber here? I mean, and, and, and are these judges going to get paid for their time? Who's going to, who's going to foot that bill? Everything about this proposal is exactly why I hate Ethereum. 
because Ethereum allows for these kinds of proposals to be bandied about. People are wasting their time on Ethereum when they come up with shit like this and Ethereum structure, the way it's built, the way it's managed and everything about it invites this shit. And that's why I Bitcoin. That's why I Bitcoin. That's why I like proof of work because proof of stake risks concentrating power to crypto exchanges and wallets according to the IMF. Will McCurdy tells us more from crypto, oh no, sorry, from decrypt.co. The International Monetary Fund highlighted some potential issues surrounding a proof of stake approach to blockchain infrastructure as part of a recent paper, making suggestions for a regulatory framework that could limit global digital asset risks. Oh, this sounds very familiar. Basically, we're out of the frying pan and into the fire. Proof of stake is an alternative to the proof of work consensus mechanism, which Bitcoin uses and the older pre-merge version of Ethereum used. Instead of dedicating hardware resources to secure the network, such as in the case of proof of work, proof of stake validators stake the network's native cryptocurrency to validate transactions on the blockchain. The paper touched on how POS could create an excessive concentration of decision-making powers on crypto exchanges and wallet service providers, which may increase market integrity risks, despite the potential energy savings. It also highlighted how proof-of-work mining requires significant energy, which could counteract the global aim of transitioning to a low-carbon economy. Regarding tech regulations in general, the paper said regulators should take a technology-neutral approach, but should also consider the regulatory implications of different forms of technology, as certain types of consensus mechanisms that underpin blockchains may inherently generate frictions with broader policy objectives and mandates, saying a, quote, technology-neutral approach may not be sustainable going forward. The report also made a host of other recommendations, including calling on the Financial Stability Board to step up saying that it is well-placed to take the lead in coordinating and establishing global standards to support national regulation of crypto assets, end quote. The FSB was established in 2009 in the immediate wake of the 2008 credit crunch. Working out of Basel, Switzerland, the organization monitors and makes recommendations about the global financial system, and it has been described as a fourth pillar of worldwide economic governance alongside the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, as well as the World Trade Organization. The report went on to say that the financial stability risks of crypto assets may not yet be globally systemic, but the growing systemic implications can already be seen in some countries and it identified a significant increase in the correlation between crypto assets and financial assets during periods of market stress, drawing from its own research. Key steps outlined in the paper include ensuring, quote, key centralized entities that carry out core functions be licensed and authorized, and that authorities might want to consider the risks around volatility, market awareness, product knowledge and understanding, and how the crypto assets are used. Throughout the paper, the IMF emphasized the importance of international collaboration, saying that the cross-sector and cross-border dimensions of crypto assets make domestic and international coordination and cooperation key, more so than in the case of many traditional financial activities. Without this linked-up approach to regulation, there could potentially be a risk of a race to the bottom by regulators and policymakers, and also of there being limited means of addressing regulatory arbitrage by financial entities, according to the IMF's report. However, the IMF was clear that regulation should not be seen as stifling innovation, but rather as building trust. Uh, all right, so what to, what's my take on this? Well, it's what my take always is. At first, they laugh at you, and then you piss them straight the fuck off, and then they fight you. And we are right in between the pissing them straight off and fighting. We're, we're, we're more on the fight side. It's going to get worse. Yeah, and you got to prepare for it. You got to prepare for it. What's a good way to prepare for it? Bitcoin. <clears throat> that's the way to prepare for it. <laughs> Honestly, that's the way to prepare for it. Because as 
Zach Vole will tell us in this upcoming Bitcoin magazine piece titled, Is Mining Censorship a Serious Threat to Bitcoin? We're going to see the power of proof of work. It was the whole reason this thing was born in the first place, guys. <clears throat> Bitcoin is designed to be a permissionless, censorship-resistant financial tool, and miners are supposed to be one of several groups that support this functionality. Yet, transaction censorship attempts by mining is becoming an increasingly important discussion topic as the mining industry landscape has dramatically changed in the past two years. Indeed, some mining teams have gone out of their way to design and launch products that censor certain transactions from being included in new blocks. Have fun staying poor. This article looks at the history of the attempts at censorship from certain actors in the mining sector. It evaluates the successes or failures of these attempts and notes potential types of mining-related attacks for the future. <clears throat> One of the most recent and cautionary examples of attempted minor censorship occurred in the second quarter of 2021 by Marathon Digital Holdings. At the end of March 2021, the company announced it would launch the North America, the, oh, sorry, launch the first North America-based fully compliant mining pool, specifically naming standards set by the Office of Foreign Asset Control, OFAC, in its press release that can be read on the SEC's website, and a link is provided. To be clear, this action was entirely voluntary by Marathon and not the result of actual OFAC requirements. In May, the pool started filtering the transaction that it mined. Less than one month later, it terminated the experiment. Perhaps a mix of misunderstanding of the Bitcoin protocol and seeing its payouts dusted by addresses associated with the Hydra market, a large Russian dark web drug marketplace, were the reasons behind calling it quits. But some seem not to have forgotten this incident, as evidenced by an unknown entity redirecting the link ofacpool.com to Marathon's website. <laughs> In 2020, a blockchain analytics firm called Blockseer launched a beta version of a similar OFAC-compliant mining pool that would require all miners to complete Know Your Customer Verification and would maintain a blacklist of addresses to prevent processing transactions from them. Blockseer also had a patent-pending tool for filtering transactions, according to the company. Across Twitter and Bitcoin Talk, the broader Bitcoin community laughed, mocked, and shamed this project for obvious reasons. A mining company called DMG later started using the pool and shortly after merged its hash rate with Marathon's pool. The Bitcoin protocol is designed to withstand censorship attacks from within its network and from without. The core ethos of the entire Bitcoin experiment is to create a permissionless, uncensorable financial tool for the world. But each piece of the network, nodes, developers, exchanges, and even miners, represent various potential attack vectors whose exploits must be thwarted. Mining attack vectors won't simply fade away, especially as the mining sector continues to grow with tens of billions of dollars invested and hash rate continuing to set new record highs. Many of these potential weaknesses have been explained and discussed at length across the many online forums, including Bitcoin Wiki, the Brains Mining Blog, the Bitcoin Talk Archives, and of course, Twitter. And with the specter of minor extractable value looming in Bitcoin's horizon, the complexity of some attacks will surely increase as the landscape of mining revenue also changes. Previous and potential mining attacks, however, have led to some misinformed thinking and analysis about the state of network censorship. Ari Paul, CIO at Block Tower Capital, correctly observed that most mining companies are regulated entities, not rogue, independent, or more or less off-grid operations. But he later suggested that large-scale mining censorship is already happening, which is not the case, as members of the industry noted in a response to Paul's tweet, and evidenced by the fact that the industry is small and vigilant enough not to overlook en masse censorship of the kind that Paul has suggested. And, as the previous section explained, many such attempts have publicly failed. Continued vigilance is important, but misrepresentations are counterproductive. Individual censorship by one or a few mining entities, moreover, is far less of a concern than complete network censorship. The difference here is not trivial. 
a couple of governments or a couple of mining pools, for example, conspiring to censor Bitcoin transaction inhibits their own ability to claim maximal mining rewards. It does not limit, slow, or stop the flow of transaction verification and propagation. Even though Bitcoin represents over 95% of the total market value of all proof-of-work cryptocurrencies, mining-related censorship concerns are not exclusive to Bitcoin. And the other protocols that deal with censorship could inform ways that Bitcoin users, builders, and investors think about avoiding mining attacks themselves. F2 Pool, for example, is one of the largest Bitcoin mining pools and has one of the largest Zcash mining pools. The latter pool has previously been watched for transaction censorship through exclusion from new blocks. One analyst has said this practice has gone on since April of 2017, claiming that shielded transactions are underrepresented by three orders of magnitude in the pool. <clears throat> and prior to its highly controversial switch away from proof of work, Ethereum miners also wrestled with privacy-related censorship incidents as Ethermine, one of the largest miners, stopped including transactions routed through coin-mixing service Tornado Cash. This service was targeted and sanctioned by the United States Department of Justice earlier this year, as Bitcoin Magazine previously reported. Most of the mining censorship incidents in Bitcoin's history have been promoted by new or expected regulation which should signal regulation as one of the industry's most watched attack vectors. And more regulations for the mining industry are coming as bureaucrats and elected officials alike pay more attention to Bitcoin, its global adoption, and the concern trolling about its energy usage. Almost every miner expects more robust and probably, in many jurisdictions, more restrictive regulations for miners. This makes the importance of protecting against mining-related attack vectors just all that more important. Marty Bent explained some plausible hypotheticals around new mining censorship in this edition of his Bitcoin newsletter. But even if Bitcoin is censored in one place, miners will still process transactions and continue hashing in another. Bitcoin is unstoppable no matter how many politicians or even other miners try to censorship or impede it. Right. Zach, that's right. I'm not worried about mining attacks, but that doesn't mean I can't remain, you know, shouldn't remain vigilant about it. But one of the best things that I think is the, one of the coolest things about Bitcoin mining is that, and it doesn't make sense right now, but I can run a miner. Okay. It doesn't make, what I mean, doesn't make sense. It doesn't make economic sense. I'm not going to be able to cover the costs of the Satoshis that I mine even if I'm connected to a mining pool uh, with a single, you know, S19. Okay, it's just not going to happen. However, I live in eastern Washington state. From what I understand, it gets cold here in the winter and the electricity is very cheap. Even at residential prices, it's really cheap because a lot of it is hydroelectric power. That's just the way, that's the way shit works up here. I, you know, I, I, I didn't decide it. Anyway, what I'm saying is if I had a miner and my neighbor across the street had a miner and we were heating our homes with the miners um, and we start multiplying that out, all of a sudden those numbers start at one point, enough people start digging into major centralized mining pools or major centralized physical mining centers. Okay, those are the ones that, that, that I worry about the most. Pools, mm, you can switch. You can switch your mining pools. Brains is coming out with, if they haven't already released it, Brains is coming out with software that allows you, the, the miner, to automatically look at all the pools and find out which one is going to give the best return. It won't surprise me if something is added to that code that is a red flag code that says this miner is mine is not mining transactions due to OFAC regulations. And if you put a flag on that mining pool, it'll be the last on the list that your miner will select and will start rotating other pools. And if all the pools that we have today do all that shit with transactions, guess what's going to happen? A brand new pool is going to spin up somewhere in the world if not two, if not three, if not four, I'm the least worried about Bitcoin mining because of proof of work 
because of the game theory behind it all, that's why the proof of stake move for Ethereum was the stupidest thing that they ever could have done. And they played right into ESG's hands because they want all they want is to be rich themselves. They don't care about enriching the world. They don't care. And I can tell because they immediately collapsed and folded like a cheap suit when the first little bit of governmental pressure was put on them. And then they were whispered, they had it whispered in their ear that if we band together, we can destroy Bitcoin and we're all going to be rich. And that's what they've done. And that's going to do it for the morning roundup. Dad says, jokes, I got run over by a rental car. It hurts a lot. Hey, do you want to support the show? Well, podcasting 2.0 is the way to go. You can stream me Satoshis while I give you these dulcet tones, or you can boost me and give me a message for me to read on the air. It actually ends up being, that segment is starting to become one of my very favorites because it's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.